Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the opening chapters of Baptism is Not Enough, How Understanding God's Covenant Changes Everything, by John G. Crawford, with a foreword by Douglas Wilson. Baptism is Not Enough, How Understanding God's Covenant Explains Everything, by John G. Crawford, and narrated by Tim Stephenson. In dedication to Cade, Lachlan, and Ayla, bound to Christ. Forward by Douglas Wilson A number of years ago, a Baptist friend accused our church of cultivating a covenantal buzzword culture. He thought we were simply using the word covenant as an all-purpose adjective, one helpful in describing absolutely everything around us. The example he used, as I recall, was our covenant peanut butter and covenant jelly. This abuse can happen, but even when it isn't happening, it can sometimes look as though it is happening. But why? The reason this happens is that we do not take the time to define what a covenant actually is. We are usually not this sloppy with other key biblical terms, words like justification or atonement or imputation or sanctification. We define these terms, taking the sweep of all biblical history into account, and then we remember how we have defined them. There are problems that can arise with this as well, but overall it is good and helps keep things clear. We are not nearly this careful with the word covenant. And this is truly odd. Think about this for a moment. Our Bible is divided into two major sections, the Old Testament, or covenant, and the New Testament, or covenant. What would many Christians do if a non-Christian friend noticed that fact and said, You know, that really puzzles me. What is a covenant, anyhow? In too many cases, the Christian would be reduced to explaining how an old covenant is a collection of books that begins with Genesis and ends with Malachi, while a new covenant begins with Matthew. A covenant is a forensic or legal arrangement that establishes a defined relationship. The relationship that is defined is a relationship between persons, so that we must not think of this definition as being rigid, legalistic, or impersonal. One of our best illustrations of a covenant in the modern day, because it is still functioning, although under assault, is the covenant of marriage. Our modern confusions about covenant have had far-reaching and destructive consequences. In this book, John Crawford does a very good job in beginning his discussion of infant baptism by discussing and defining, from the scriptures, what a covenant is. He does this thoroughly in the first portion of the book, and some readers might be tempted to check the cover of the book from time to time. They thought they were getting a book about infant baptism, and here it is chapter 3, and still no water, and still no babies. But the reason for this is straightforward. Crawford states in this book that Paul Jewett's book on baptism is the best credo-baptist, or believer's baptism, case out there, and this is a sentiment with which I agree. When I was going through the turmoil of my own transition on this subject, I read a stack of books, and in my judgment, Jewett's was the best representation of the credo-baptist position. And in that book, he points out why Crawford's approach is a very wise approach for the paedo-baptist, baptism of children, to take. If a brand new Christian wants to decide what to think about the subject of baptism, he can get a concordance or Bible search software and look up all the instances of baptism in the New Testament. It seems simple. In the book of Acts, everyone professes faith first and gets baptized second. Why is there even a debate about this? But Jewett wrote that if we expand our discussion to include things like generations and olive trees and covenants, 
the Pedobaptist case becomes, to use Jewett's word for it, a juggernaut. I do not commend this approach for pragmatic reasons. I commend it because it is the fastest way for modern individualists to learn an intellectual framework that is generally alien to us and which ought not to be alien to us. That framework is a covenantal one and is pervasive throughout Scripture. I commend this book to you as a good help in restoring this framework. Introduction In the summer of 1995, I read a Christian socialist book that changed my life. It was Ron Sider's Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. I read it more than once and was convinced that all professing Christians should read this work and begin to conduct themselves according to the agenda found within it. Now, before you put this book down, let me first tell you why Sider's book changed my life. Its impact came from the fact that it unapologetically connected my Christian faith with the world around me. It went beyond the first step of soul-winning to culture-changing, according to the Word of God. In a world where Christianity did not often venture much beyond a person's internal relationship with God, or outside the four walls of the church, it was a breath of fresh air. Of course, we as Christians would fight cultural battles around us when they were hot issues, such as abortion, homosexuality, or, a favorite of the last two centuries, alcohol. But we did not take a comprehensive approach to the application of God's Word to every area of the world around us. I was beside myself with excitement that Sider's book did. An interesting thing happened not long after the experience described above. I read a refutation of Sider's book. It was David Chilton's Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. Those not familiar with the importance and function of good rhetoric may have been put off by the book. But good confrontational rhetoric is quite beneficial. It is especially useful for those sitting outside looking in on an ideological debate. It helps them evaluate and find holes in any given argument. In short, it aids in decision-making, understanding, refining and solidifying ideas, and, ultimately, in gaining direction that manifests itself in the way they conduct themselves throughout life. In this way, healthy debate becomes essential to progress in thinking, and therefore everything else. So what was so helpful about this particular refutation of Sider's book? Beginning with the same premise that Scripture did in fact apply to every area of life, Chilton remained fully faithful to God's Word and consistent with its authority and the complete sovereignty of God. As opposed to Scripture not applying to all of life, or only some of Scripture applying to all of life, Sider's view, his book was helpful in driving home that all Scripture applies to all of life. As such, it became a jumping-off point for scouring Scripture and re-evaluating all of my presuppositions in light of God's sovereignty, as well as sola scriptura, Scripture alone, and tota scriptura, all of Scripture. After digging deeper into the Bible, and probably 20,000 pages of discussion from past centuries, through contemporary debates, I found myself in a much different place. It was a place where God was truly sovereign, and the scope of His purpose for the world was all-encompassing. That brings us to this book. The original title of this book was Covenant Representation and Infant Baptism, but after finishing a draft of the manuscript, it was apparent that the title did not do it justice. The original impetus for writing the book arose out of a decision to move my membership to a new church. Holding a doctrine of infant baptism would not allow me to continue membership in a Baptist church. While this may not be such a big deal to most people, it was for me. 
I had been in the fellowship for over thirty years. It was a large church, one in which my father had been pastor for all of those years. This was a community who, although they did not give full attention to covenant theology, helped form who I am, led by a father and pastor who fostered the understanding of the supremacy of the Bible and the ideal of living with integrity according to it and one's own convictions. It was my father, he who knew me well enough and was perceptive enough to say, there seems to be more here than just the issue of baptism at work. He was right, there was. Baptism was an immensely important issue, but it did not stand on its own. It was merely one facet of a unified and comprehensive paradigm. So, perhaps like many other books that are written, I wrote this short book out of necessity. The good news is that we are seeing a return to the Reformation's insistence on the absolute sovereignty of God. Going beyond this, though, its emphasis on covenantal representation could clear up many difficulties in the debate of infant baptism in Reformed Baptist circles. In addition, a covenantal approach to our families and the gospel will provide necessary traction to the many who are giving their all to carry the name of Jesus Christ around the world. The ideas in this book are not new. When you think you have new ideas and go to put them on paper, you realize most everything has already been written. All there is to offer is a new presentation from a unique perspective, perhaps to a different audience, with a few changes at the margin. I do this in hoping to extend ideas that need to be embraced as the Church continues her victorious journey through history. I use the term all-encompassing above. That is what this book seeks to point out. God's purpose for His people covers all of life. Biblical Christianity is truly a comprehensive paradigm. It touches everything. God is transcendent, but He also relates to us, and He relates to us not only inside of us or just through the life of our church, but He relates to the whole created order for His glory. He does this through the covenant. The purpose of this book is not necessarily to change the doctrine of the reader, although for some I hope it does. For a number of reasons, people do not easily change doctrinally. There are many who have not worked out their first principles or presuppositions, and it is to those whom this work may be of some benefit. I was recently reading on the website of a church local to my area. We simply offer a relationship with Jesus, free from rules, rituals, or religion, empowered through the Holy Spirit. This statement is neither logically nor theologically sound, as this book will demonstrate. God relates to His creation through covenant. His covenant addresses all of life. It is all-encompassing. It connects everything to everything. As Cornelius Van Til stated, there is not a place in all the universe where man can go and say, this is my private realm. No button he can press and say, here I step outside of God's jurisdiction. If man had such a button, he would always have his finger on it. But it does not exist. He only lives, moves, and has his being in God's world. Or Abraham Kuyper, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. It wasn't my doctrine of baptism that changed first and foremost. It was my doctrine of God's covenant with His created order. The people around me who saw changes in my faith and wondered why deserve a complete answer. This book is an attempt at an answer. Chapter 1. What is a Covenant? 
From a young age, I was taught that the most important thing in life was my relationship with God. Much of this book is designed to drive home that very idea. The question is, what does that relationship look like? What is the nature of that relationship, and how are we to conduct our daily life accordingly? Is it a mystical connection to a transcendent God? Is it a daily response to my conscience? What does it mean to have a close or a good relationship? A host of evangelical clichés surround these questions, but they do not provide the clear insight needed to deal with such important matters. The answer to these questions and many more are bound up in the scriptural idea of a covenant. In fact, from a biblical standpoint, the very key to understanding our relationship to God is the covenant. Most Christians would acknowledge that the issue is not really whether we have a relationship with God or not, since we all do. We were all created by the triune God, in His image and for His good pleasure. As created beings, we are linked to our Creator. Our very existence depends on Him. The question is not, therefore, whether we relate to God, but how. How do we relate in time and space to a supernatural God? Since creation, God has related to man through covenants. These covenants provide a real-world structure through which we relate to God on earth. So, what is a covenant? In a biblical sense, it is a legal bond between two or more parties. Legal meaning that each party makes a statement, confession, and agrees to specific terms, with consequences invoked on each party for failure to keep the terms. This agreement takes place in the presence of witnesses and is usually followed by the public sealing or display of the agreement and sometimes a meal together. The parties then relate within the context of this formal structure. Relating together within this legal bond is referred to as being in covenant with one another. The parties are connected through this legal bond. The bond is not one of being materially connected in any way. Neither is it of a magical or mystical connection unseen in Scripture. It is a legal connection. Why, then, is this so important to understand? Because this is how God chose to link the unseen to the seen, the supernatural to the material or created order here on earth. This in no way diminishes the role of the Holy Spirit and His work within the hearts of men. It merely gives outward manifestation to the power of God's Spirit. It is also important to note that this is in direct opposition to some mystical religions, which reject a creator in favor of the sovereignty of man and nature. They view the connection with God as a chain of being throughout all things. The Christian confesses a wholly separate, sovereign God that is over his creation. He chose to relate to this creation through covenant. Covenant at Creation we are all under the covenant at creation, because we are all sons of the first Adam. When God created Adam, he related to him on certain terms. He asserted his sovereignty in the very act of creation. He then gave Eve to Adam as a subordinate helper. To both, he gave specific instructions. He commanded them to tend the garden, be fruitful, and subdue the whole earth. He also commanded them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These were the terms of their legal bond recorded in Scripture. The presence of laws implies a legal relation. God then laid out the consequences for breaking the terms of the agreement. Blessings of the fruit of the earth are implied for obedience, but death is the curse for breaking the covenant. 
These blessings and curses not only apply to Adam, but to all his descendants. So from the very beginning we are presented with what it meant for men to have a relationship with God. That relationship was one of a covenant. It still is. We could not otherwise hold our doctrine of original sin. Romans 5, 12-21 The covenant at creation is also sometimes referred to as the covenant of works, although this label carries with it other connotations that are not the focus of the present discussion. Even though the word covenant is not explicitly used in the text, the legal structure is obvious. In addition, the prophet Hosea applies the term covenant to Adam's transgression, Hosea 6-7. Perhaps even better is the term creation covenant, since it gives due attention to God's word in Jeremiah 33, where he notes a covenant with a created order. That said, at the very least, it is apparent that all of creation is linked to God by a legal bond. We are distinct from God and subordinate to Him as our Creator. Given Adam's headship, which we will discuss in more detail later, we have all broken the terms of the covenant and are therefore deserving of eternal death. If left to our sinful nature, we seek to suppress such truth and thereby seal our place as objects of God's wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Romans 1.18 So then, we are left with the uncomfortable but very real position of deserving the curses of that original covenant God made with man. Not only that, all of creation is cursed and in need of redemption. So, what are we to do? God put together a plan for His glory and at His good pleasure to redeem a people to Himself. Think of this in terms of God providing a substitute to take on the consequences for our not keeping the terms of the agreement. How did He do this? He chose to accomplish this once again by relating to His creation through a covenant. Although there are multiple covenant administrations, there is one redemptive covenant. This is commonly called the covenant of grace and is first inaugurated with the promised seed in Genesis 3.15. We see the everlasting covenant come into view with Abraham. Covenant with Abraham God makes a covenant with Abraham, and once again we see the covenant structure clearly as the way in which God chooses to relate to mankind. Where the concept of covenant was less spelled out at creation, the covenant with Abraham adds to our biblical picture of covenant. In contrast to the covenant made with Adam, this is a covenant with a particular people. The details of this legal agreement between God and Abraham are scattered throughout multiple chapters in Genesis. Again, we are looking for a description of how God relates to mankind generally, and here specifically with Abraham. First, we see God establish himself as the sovereign. When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Genesis 17.1 And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Genesis 15.7 Is there any mistaking who the sovereign lawgiver is here? God initiates his agreement with Abraham as the one who sets the terms of the agreement. 
From there, God outlines blessings to Abraham that are both historical and typological. They are realized in part with Abraham and his earthly descendants, but are fully realized among his spiritual descendants. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Genesis 12.2 The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward, for I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Genesis 13, 14 and 15. These promises are found embedded among a series of commands. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Genesis 12, 1. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Genesis 18.19 Obedience to these commands implies the gifts promised to Abraham. Disobedience necessarily implies the opposite. God ratifies the bond with Abraham by a peculiar ceremony in Genesis 15. God makes an oath. This oath is one of self-condemnation should he not keep his side of the agreement. To demonstrate such, he cuts three animals in half and passes through the pieces. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Genesis 15, 17 and 18. Then later in chapter 17, we see God sealing the covenant and giving the sign of circumcision to Abraham and his descendants as an outward display signifying God's intention to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Although this is a very brief treatment, we can see that God related to Abraham and his descendants through a very real structure, that of an agreement with stipulations, and therefore legal. If all this forensic or judicial talk sounds formal and unloving to you, the truth is that it feels very different depending on your frame of reference. God did, in fact, save a peculiar people out of Egypt. Prior to that, he made a very exclusive promise to Abraham. The reality is that God can do as he pleases, and we are left with what his word reveals about himself. God gives us our very breath. He makes the sun to shine on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. We are all beneficiaries of God's common grace. That said, he chose to relate uniquely to his elect through the blessing of Jesus Christ. No man can behave autonomously, on his own will and power, absent of a higher authority. God is sovereign. Through his sovereignty, he chose to provide instructions to how we should live our lives. The very presence of these instructions presupposes a legal arrangement between God and his creation. To imagine differently would be to imagine something that was not Christianity at all. With that understood, let's turn to the agreement made between God and the people of Israel. Covenant with Israel We have seen how God related through a covenant with Adam at creation, and how God's dealing with mankind is further elucidated with a covenant made with Abraham. Keeping in mind the plan of redemption following the fall detailed above, we now turn to another major covenant administration depicted in Scripture. This one is with Israel, descendants of Abraham who became enslaved to the people of Egypt, a people who did not acknowledge God as Lord and Creator of all things. As the book of Exodus opens, we see God remembering the covenant made with Abraham and his descendants. 
During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Exodus 2, 23-25 A few chapters later, we see God relating to the people of Israel again through the covenant structure. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Exodus 6, 2-8 Israel was already God's covenant people. They were bound to him legally. He also, out of his grace, saved them from Egypt, though they did not deserve it. He reminds them of this fact, and then proceeds to renew his covenant with them at Sinai. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together, and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Exodus 19, 3-8 Following this we see the myriad of stipulations laid down for Israel in Exodus and Leviticus. In Deuteronomy we see the renewal of the covenant again, with the new generation, following the death of the disobedient generation in the wilderness. God acted in judgment toward his people Israel. He executed this judgment according to the terms laid out in the covenant. The same covenant is executed by the following generation. The book of Deuteronomy reads as a legal document between a master and his subjects. God establishes his sovereignty and provides the terms of the covenant along with sanctions for obedience and disobedience. What then became of this people in covenant with God? For a concise picture, we turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, 
I said to you in your blood, Live. I said to you in your blood, Live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. Ezekiel 16, 1-22 God pictures His covenant relation to Israel as a covenant of marriage. His bride was chronically adulterous, and throughout the balance of the Old Testament, we see God bearing with His bride, while at the same time sending prophet after prophet to prosecute Israel for her disobedience to the covenant stipulations. Finally, in the New Testament, we see a new day dawn, with the promised seed being shown as a descendant of Abraham, and coming to save His people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 with the birth of Jesus, the legal bond with Israel again comes into full view. The Gospels comprise the story of the Son of God as He makes His way to the cross. During that time, God's bride, Israel, is continually warned and pleaded with to turn to Jesus Christ as the prophesied Christ and promised seed. Genesis 3.15 It begins with John the Baptist coming as the prophesied prophet, preaching repentance to God's stubborn bride. Throughout the Gospels, there are altercations between Jesus and the Jewish leaders for their unwillingness to recognize and submit to the true Gospel. They challenged His authority directly, as we see in the book of Matthew. And when He entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to Him as He was teaching, and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Matthew 21-23 Jesus follows with His parable of the tenants, aimed directly at Israel. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a winepress in it, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. 
And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death, and let out the vineyard to other tenants, who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Matthew 21, 33-45 in Matthew 23, we see the pronouncement of seven woes on the Jewish leaders, as they hold greater responsibility as Israel's authority, and Jesus' lament over the coming destruction of his bride. Chapter 24 details the destruction of the temple in greater detail, and chapter 26 shows the high priest of Israel, Caiaphas, and Jesus confessing that he is the Son of God. He prophesies that Caiaphas will, from then on, see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. For the Jewish leaders who understood Old Testament language, this could refer to none other than the judgment due Israel for breaking the terms of the covenant that bound her to God. The story of God's covenant relationship with Israel continues as the book Acts opens with Jesus' ascension and the prophesied outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Directly following this outpouring, Peter speaks to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Acts 2.14. He quotes the prophet Joel and calls for the people to recognize the Messiah who has come. Many turn to Jesus, and the subsequent story of the early church accelerates. Up through the book of Revelation, we see a series of Holy Spirit-inspired epistles that guide, encourage, and confront the early church as the confessional body that recognizes Jesus as Messiah and obeys Him. Paul goes to great lengths in his letters to correct early errors brought about by Jewish zealots who claimed Jesus alone was not enough for salvation. He describes Israel as possessing the covenants, law, temple, and promises. It is true that to the collective covenant people Israel belong the covenants and promises, but not every individual in Israel received the promised blessings. At this point, it is very important to remember our earlier discussions. Israel was generally and objectively in covenant with God. They were under the terms of the covenant made with God during the time of Abraham. They were legally bound in a covenant, pictured by God as a marriage covenant, that stipulated blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. They were obstinately disobedient, and not only had they broken God's moral law, but had rejected the very fulfillment of all the laws that pointed to Jesus as the Christ. They were in grave danger of receiving the punishments stipulated in their covenant with the Creator God. In Romans 11, Paul describes a vine from which Israel is pruned and Gentiles grafted in. The root of this vine is Jesus, Isaiah 11.10. In the book of Revelation, we witness something that has been continually misinterpreted during this era where dispensationalism has held such a foothold in evangelical culture. We witness the legal divorce of the bride of Israel for her sins of spiritual adultery and murder, Matthew 21, 33-44, 23-29-35, Acts 7, 51-53, and Revelation 
She is executed with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. This was the consequence of disobedience spelled out in the covenant made between God and his people Israel. We then see a beautiful picture of God's new bride, the church, being carried over the threshold into the new heavens and new earth as a spotless bride. This church is none other than the true descendants of Abraham, the elect of God, made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. But what of the church here on earth? The eschatological church is indeed a true bride. But what of the bride of Christ on earth, here and now? How is this church seen or perceived in space and time? Certainly the hearts of the elect are beyond our perception. To answer this question, we must turn back to the covenant. As we have stated, God relates to people on earth through the structure of a covenant. This very structure governs the new bride of Christ, the church. The New Covenant In Matthew 16, we see the first mention of this new bride we call the church. Jesus says that he will build his church upon the confession of Peter. What was Peter's confession? It was that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, 16. Jesus then goes on to say that the church will see final victory and that it will be linked to heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16:19. How is it linked to heaven? To put it another way, how will the church on earth be sensibly determined, and how will it objectively relate to a supernatural God? You guessed it. It will be through the covenant. Those that comprise the New Testament community are those who confessionally place themselves under the terms of the covenant. In the New Testament, we see no altering of the structure and form of God's covenant bride. God still relates to people on earth, in time and in space. God chooses to reveal himself and work out his redemptive history through a people in an objective covenant with him. The decree of election before the foundation of the world and his elect are not visible to us but the covenant relationship is visible. The visible display of placing oneself under the terms of the covenant is baptism. We will deal more with this initiatory rite in the terms of the covenant in the next chapter. For now, suffice it to say that there is a new covenant bride on earth in history. All men are in covenant relation to God, as discussed earlier, but there is a special community of called-out ones through whom God intends to accomplish the redemption of creation. He is their God, and they have commands by which to live and conduct themselves as God's people. There are corresponding blessings and curses associated within the terms of the covenant. Again, this is how God has chosen to relate to mankind. We have no other biblical model. There are surely certain differences in the New Covenant administration, such as the gift of the Holy Spirit and the full written revelation of the Word of God, but these changes do not necessitate a change in structure of God's relation to his bride. These are primarily differences in power and revelation, not structure. All of Scripture as Covenant Until now we have shown how God relates to mankind through specific covenantal administrations throughout history. God has always related through a legal bond with his creation. The supernatural manifests itself in the natural through a set of terms presented by the Creator. Not until the New Covenant administration was this covenant so completely available as God's Word in written form. God gave us His Word in Scripture. His Word is final. 
His written revelation is now closed. Interestingly, what we will find is that the whole of Scripture is in the form of a covenant. It is incredibly significant, but not surprising, that God's only revealed word to us is in the very form of a legal document. Meredith Klein, in his landmark book, The Structure of Biblical Authority, builds on the work of George Mendenhall by discovering the form of suzerainty treaties of the ancient Near East and their close similarities to the form of Scripture. He makes the bold statement, It will emerge, we believe, that for purposes of reappraising the Old Testament canon, the most significant development in the last quarter century has not been the Dead Sea Scroll finds, but discoveries made concerning the covenants of the Old Testament in light of ancient Near Eastern treaty diplomacy. In short, these ancient treaties detail the events following a successful military campaign wherein the victorious king draws up a treaty detailing the terms of peace. Cornelius van der Waal provides a concise description of such treaties. Political treaties have been discovered that were made between kings of equal standing, for instance, those of Egypt and of the Hittite Empire, parity covenants. Even more tests have been found which refer to a treaty between a great king and the subjected king of a conquered country, a vassal state or protectorate, suzerainty covenants. In the course of time, the treaty texts have undergone amendments. Obviously, fashion is not confined to clothing alone. The sequence of the various parts may change, and other parts may have been omitted or described less clearly. It appears, however, that even before Abraham's time, there was standardized covenant terminology. According to a rather general consensus, no small thing in the scientific world, the ideal structure of such a dynastic treaty would look like this. Preamble Historical Prologue Stipulations Curses and Blessings Invocation of Witnesses Directions for Disposition and Public Reading Now, keeping in mind van der Waal's statement that archaeology is the handmaid of biblical interpretation, not its master, it should be no surprise to us, given the previous discussion, that the Bible itself is laid out in the form of these ancient treaties. God is, in fact, our suzerain. We are his vassals. We operate and relate to him under these terms. Klein goes on in his book to show that the very founding of Scripture coincided with the founding of Israel as the kingdom of God. He then demonstrates that the whole of the Old Testament is in covenant form and represents the covenant with Israel, the people of God. He does not stop there, but goes on to describe the structure of the New Testament. In the case of the New Testament, as in that of the Old Testament, acceptance of its own claims as to its primary divine authorship leads to recognition of its pervasively covenantal nature and purpose. For the New Testament so received will be understood as the word of the ascended Lord of the New Covenant, by which he structures the community of the New Covenant, and orders the faith and life of his servant people in their consecrated relationship to him. And then the human authors of the New Testament books, authorized by their Lord to speak his word, will be seen to function as his ministers of the new covenant. See 2 Corinthians 3.6. With respect to immediate as well as ultimate provenance, the Sitzim Laban of the New Testament books is fundamentally covenantal. They all arise out of a covenantal source of authority, and all address themselves to the covenant community. 
Given that the very founding of Scripture coincided with the founding of the Kingdom of Israel, we should not be at all surprised to see the canon, or covenant document, coinciding with the covenantal divorce of that kingdom and the taking of the Bride of Christ in covenant, as the founding of the archetypical Kingdom of God that will extend throughout all of the earth and on into eternity. Covenant Structure Revisited Given this understanding, our discussion regarding structure would not be complete without visiting further the structure of the covenant we see in Scripture. I have spoken to this above in relation to the similar structure of the ancient treaties, but we must return to the beginning of our discussion where we were looking at the covenantal form given to us by Scripture itself. This structure will have direct bearing on subsequent chapters and is vitally important. In addition to Klein, there is another writer whose contribution to understanding the covenant is significant, Ray Sutton, and his book, That You May Prosper. He begins with a short history of covenant thinking, and then goes on to detail and defend the clearest picture of what comprises the elements of the biblical covenant. Over and against what the secular world identified as the key component of the ancient treaties, Sutton identifies five components or key concepts of the covenant in the Word of God. Not only are they identified, but he goes on to show how the Bible in its structure displays each of them. The five components are transcendence, hierarchy, ethics, sanctions, and continuity provisions. 1. Transcendence is what was noted above, beginning with Adam at creation. Within a divine covenant agreement, there is an establishment of God as the supreme sovereign transcendent over and distinct from his creation. He alone has the power over all. Man is not sovereign. He is subject to the will of his creator. As one might expect, establishing who has authority in the legal relationship is a given. 2. Hierarchy is the component of the agreement that spells out who has the authority to act on the authority given by God. God acts through mankind and gives man a corporate reporting structure through which he takes that action. This is functional subordination. 3. Ethics are merely the rules or laws that govern the relationship between the parties. As mentioned, God establishes his authority, establishes himself as creator, and is the only party that possesses the power to command or set the stipulations of the agreement. These are provided to us in His inspired Word. 4. Sanctions are those consequences that follow from either keeping, positive, or breaking the laws, negative, governing our bond with God. An oath is taken that binds us and formally sets us under the terms of the agreement. 5. Continuity provisions are set forth to give direction to the covenant relationship for future generations. These provisions outline the extension of authority and rule into the future. Whether or not there are other distinct facets of ancient Near Eastern treaties of that time, these are the characteristics that keep surfacing as the core of the covenant structure we see in God's Word. These are consistent with the very foundational tenets of our Christian doctrine. We acknowledge God as sovereign. We carry out His will here on earth. He gives us His Word by which to live. He blesses and punishes, in time and in eternity. The concept of eternity, of heaven and hell, are the continuity provisions laid out in Scripture. 
God made provision for His people to inherit eternal life. Those that do not believe in Him come under His eternal judgment. This is Christian doctrine at its core. So we return to where we began with regard to our relationship with God. No longer does the oft-heard phrase have to be a vague reference to our warm feelings toward God, the amount of prayers we pray, or obedience to any number of behaviors labeled as Christ-like. A good relationship with God is living life obediently and joyously under the terms of the legal bond we have with Him as our Creator and King. The covenant document is none other than the inspired and written Word of God, the Bible. It represents God as our sovereign and provides a representative hierarchy through which to be governed according to the commands laid out in the entirety of Scripture. The document includes not only the commands, but also the blessings and curses that follow from either keeping or breaking the terms of the covenant. And, as mentioned above, the covenant document leaves us with the provisions of future inheritance for those keeping the terms and future disinheritance for those who break the terms of the divine agreement. If this legal structure seems like a harsh and unloving legalism, we must remind ourselves that those who keep the covenant cannot do so on their own. The topic of God's working and our responsibility is not within the scope of this book, but there has been much written on the subject that is helpful. For our purposes, Paul's words in Romans will have to suffice. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Romans 9, 19 and 20. God sets forth the terms through which we are to relate to Him, and He to us. We are to be responsible men, and are to remain thankful to God for any of our ability to respond in obedience. It is Jesus Christ who is the sacrifice for sins, and through the Holy Spirit will give power to persevere to all those He has called according to His purpose and good pleasure. With this in mind, we need to go further in our investigation of the covenant concept. I have stated that the covenant is the structure through which God has chosen to relate to His creation. That said, what is unique about a covenant from a biblical standpoint? Is it just a peace treaty? Are not all contracts with terms and stipulations covenants? This is the subject that we will cover in the next chapter. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen to the full audiobook, Baptism is Not Enough, How Understanding God's Covenant Changes Everything, by John G. Crawford. Available now on Canon Plus.